voice. Love that voice and an easy to listen to voice. So we're looking at Acts 15 this morning together. And last week we began a new series. We're calling it Throwback. There it is. I think we have the picture still up there on the screen. We're looking at the second half of the book of Acts. And in the second half of the book of Acts, what we find is the story of the first churches that were ever planted in the ancient world as the gospel spread from just Jerusalem, as in concentric circles from Jerusalem to the rest of the Mediterranean world. So we are throwing back to these ancient churches to see what can we learn from them about what does it mean to be the church for us today. It's kind of become a trendy thing in our culture to throw back. There's throwback uniforms, throwback Thursday and all that. Um, this week, we were watching a show. We just finished it, and we kind of binge-watched it on Netflix. I have to say, it was called Stranger Things. I don't know if any, anybody watched that. I'm see, yeah, I'm seeing some fans out there. It was really good. But one of the things that I liked about it, it was a throwback to the 80s. Everything was 80s, the music, the dress, and all that. So it kind of gave me a lot of nostalgia. And there was actually a, a Christianity Today article on the show, Stranger Things, I was talking about how it really got in touch with this sense of nostalgia-soaked culture that we have and that we live in. And it made me ask, why? Why do we have nostalgia? Why do we want to throw back and look to our roots and kind of stay true to who we are? I think a lot of it has to do with the world we live in. It's so fast-paced. Technology is throwing at us news all the time. Yesterday's news, that's irrelevant. Show me what's new today. And so we live in such a fast-paced information you know, world where everything's coming at us and everything is coming at us so quickly. There's a danger as we're taking in all this information that we lose all sense of our roots and where we come from, our connection to the past. So this series in the book of Acts, in the letters of Paul, they remind us that the church was not invented in the 21st century, that it is not a product of American culture. So how does a church decide on its priorities? How does a church decide, what are we going to be about? What's our mission? And not just get carried away, maybe in what's the fad of the day, even when it comes to churches and church strategy and that kind of thing, but remain true and stay true to its roots. To look outside of our time, to look outside of our culture, that's why, one of the main reasons why Luke wrote the book of Acts. And what we're looking at the book of Acts to learn. So today, as we read in that passage, we're going to be looking at a snapshot of the church at Jerusalem from the book of Acts, chapter 15. And the title of the message is Grace Church. What does it mean to be? How important is it that the church remains centered on and built on grace? This chapter is known by commentators and scholars of the book of Acts as a watershed moment. This is like a turning point in the whole story that the book of Acts tells. All the key leaders of the church are gathered in one place. And what we have is a record of their theological counsel, a theological debate. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, yeah, that's what gets my juices flowing, a theological debate. You've got my attention. But others of you are thinking, that sounds really boring. 
How is that relevant to my life, a theological debate? But what we'll see here as we look at this chapter is that this debate was the kind of debate that's worth having. It saved the church in many ways from losing Jesus, from losing grace. Acts 15 shows us that if we lose grace, we lose the very heart, the very essence of Christianity. If we lose grace, we lose God. Christianity becomes empty and a powerless religion. So it's a warning to the church, and it's a warning to each of us personally. That if the church, just 20 years after Jesus lived and died and ascended into heaven, if after just 20 years, people who knew him, people who spent time with them, were prone to lose sight of grace, and they needed to gather together in this council, in this debate, to clarify, no, Christianity is a religion of grace, it shows us that we are each so prone to lose grace, to lose sight of grace, and how it's a continual, it's a lifelong journey for us to learn grace, to live grace. Let's put a definition of grace out there, just so we're all on the same page before we move on. Grace means that to be a Christian, it's not a status or a state you earn or you achieve. But to be a Christian is a gift that you receive. It's not about a status or a state you achieve by what you do or don't do, but it's a gift you receive based on what Jesus has done. So for our time together this morning, our outline is going to be, first we're going to take a look at the context and the background of this story, and then we're going to do something a little bit different. I have an eight-point sermon. You're smiling. I'm not joking. It's an eight-point sermon. No, but it's not going to be the longest eight-point sermon, hopefully, that you've ever heard. We're going to look at four signs that, we lo- that are true of us, four signs that we lose sight of grace, and four signs that are true of us when we lose sight of grace, and four signs that are true of us when we're learning to live in grace. So we're going to really look at a four-point sermon and look at the flip side of those points. Because it's a long passage, we're going to spend most of our time really in the center of this passage, which was Peter's speech, his short speech that he gave in verses 7 through 11. But let's look at the background first. After Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch, which we looked at last week, they went throughout all the region. And what they did was they established churches. These were the first churches in these cities, in this region. And they came back after they had done that to their sending church, to the church at Antioch, and they gave a report. But then we see in verse 15 what happened. It says, When they were giving this report, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Essentially, these people came from outside, from the region of Judea, and said, faith in Jesus is not enough. You guys didn't know this, but there's something else that you need to do. In order to be saved, you have to become fully Jewish. Until you add Jewish conversion, which was symbolized through circumcision, if you add Jewish conversion to your Jesus conversion, then you'll be fully in. Then you'll be a complete Christian. So as the message of Jesus was going beyond Jerusalem, beyond those with a Jewish religious and moral background, to those whom the Jews would have considered immoral, outsiders, or pagan, in their mind, the irreligious world, when these two groups came together, those with a Jewish cultural background, those who didn't have this background, 
you had the first major threat to Christianity emerge. And the threat was the danger of losing grace. The threat was losing sight that the gospel is not a message of becoming more religious, more moral. And it's not a message that it's fine to remain irreligious and immoral. It's something altogether different. It's a message of grace. And we can never lose sight of that. So that's the background. Let's look at now four signs that we are losing grace. First sign. When we esteem outward conformity over inward reality. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Peter's talking to the council. He's addressing the situation. He says, God, who knows the heart, cleanse their hearts by faith. And if you have a pen, you can underline the word heart or hearts. We know we're losing grace when we're preoccupied with the external, when we're preoccupied with outward conformity to rules and appearance and performance in ourselves and others. Because Christianity is an inside-out face, so the heart, the inward reality, always takes precedence over the externals. So these, these guys who came into Antioch that we learn about in, in verse 1 and verse 5, they were so different than Barnabas, whom we looked at last week. Barnabas came into the same church in the same situation, and it says in verse 23 of chapter 11, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. Barnabas was looking for signs of God's inward work, faith, trust, and he said, out of that trust, stay faithful, stay wholehearted, but in contrast, these people came in, and the first thing they were looking for was, is this community, are these people conforming to the rules that we think are important? So what's the first thing that you look for? In yourself? In other people? Is it the heart? Or is it the exterior? This is hard for us. This is hard for all of us. This is hard for me. There's so much in our world and in our lives that is entrenched and that is shaped by performance. By conforming to a standard. We're measured by grades. That's how we get measured in school. We're measured by our performance evaluations at our jobs. We take pride in our resumes, where we went to school, our job titles, our positions, our salaries. Or we live with the constant pressure of not having the resume, not having the position, not having the title that we wish we have. We esteem the outwardly beautiful, successful, and the accomplished. And then we live in this world of social media that in many ways can add to the pressure of exterior, external conformity. There's a sociologist at MIT, her name's Sherry Turkle. You may have come across her work or her articles. Her, her work and research is in this world of human and technology and the interaction between humans and technology and its effect on our relationships. And she says that social media gives us this opportunity to have filtered selves. So we can present a filter of what we want to be seen through. We, want to, we can filter everything about ourselves through this filter. This is how I want to be seen on social media or on Facebook, Instagram, whatever it might be. So how many times do you see people posting their video of their kids having a meltdown at dinner and saying, this was our dinner, isn't that great? 
or having a plate of food that was just like, eh, that wasn't a very good meal. Let me post that. Or the family picture where everybody's pulling each other's hair and running away. We don't post that. We post everybody smiling. Look at this amazing dinner that I enjoyed. Look at my kid's test, an A+. Uh, the one that they got a D on? No, I'm not going to post that one. We'll just put that. We'll filter that one through. All this creates that tre tremendous pressure for us. How come my kids aren't always smiling? Why can't we have a great dinner like that? And you think that is the world that we're called to measure up to. Peter says, the gospel flips this on its head. He says, the most important thing is not what's going on out here, but what's going on in here. You can try to clean up the outside all you want, but that does nothing to cleanse the heart, which is only done through faith. You can look and you can act, and you can do all the things that you think a Christian can do. But you can totally miss grace, and you can totally miss God, and you can have an empty and powerless faith. Sign number two. We emphasize distinctions. Looking at verse 9 here in the text. Peter says, God, he, God, made no distinction between us and them. These other teachers had come in and brought in us versus them perspective into this church. And notice how Peter addresses this. In verse 8 he says, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 9 again. He made no distinction between us and them. Verse 11, we are saved, we are saved by grace just as they. The more that we divide the world into an us versus them, emphasizing distinctions, the more in danger we are of losing grace. For some of us, middle school and high school, or maybe a little bit far back in the memory bank, for others of us it wasn't too long, or some of you are there right now. But what doesn't change in middle and high school are the social dynamics. Unfortunately, it can all too often be about distinctions, us versus them. Looking for a way that we're, we are an us. I'm one of the us. I'm not one of them. Finding the road and the path to be in the popular crowd. Through sports or through our looks, our clothes, or practicing our hip-hop dance moves in the mirror. That was when I was in middle school. Maybe that doesn't apply to you. C.S. Lewis says, in his essay, The Inner Ring, that this doesn't change as we get older. We're all drawn into the lure of being in the inner ring. The us, not the them, is still a powerful driving force in our lives. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. He says, once the first novelty is worn off, the members of this circle will, no, will be no more interesting than your old friends. Why should they be? You were not looking for virtue or kindness or loyalty or humor or learning or wit or any of the things that can be really enjoyed. You merely wanted to be in. And that is a pleasure that cannot last. As long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You are trying to peel an onion. When you succeed, there will be nothing left. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain.
It isn't faith in Jesus that leads us to an us versus them mentality about the world. Lewis says it's fear. It's fear of being an outsider. And if we live there, in that fear, we're in danger of losing sight of grace. That's sign number two. Sign number three here in the passage. We elevate our preferences to requirements. We elevate our preferences to requirements. These guys that came in from Judea said in verse 1, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. In verse 5, they said, it is necessary for you to obey the whole law of Moses to be a real Christian. When our preferences get elevated to the level of prerequisites or requirements, when secondary preferences become primary priorities, we're in danger of losing sight of grace. There's no ambiguity about what these guys were saying. They said, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be acceptable to God and be a part of the real community, then you must do this. It is necessary for you to do this. And to be fair, to understand where they were coming from, there was a major shift happening with the coming of Jesus and His death and His resurrection. With what circumcision and the boundary markers that the Jewish people live by. They had laws set up by God. And with Jesus, all these things we learn that were pointing forward that were meant to show us Him, have now met their purpose, have been fulfilled with His coming. They were intended to point to Jesus, and what they were pointing to had now come. So what we see is after 18 or 20 years of the Jewish people trying to get used to this shift, we see that the gospel had not yet dislodged their deeply held cultural convictions and preferences. And this can happen with us. It happens anytime we elevate anything but Jesus as a requirement for acceptance with God or a requirement for acceptance within the church. Anytime that happens, we're in red alert danger of losing grace. You may have heard this before, but the formula is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It can be Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus a conformity to a certain set of pre-selected Christian ethics and morals that we think are most important. Jesus plus a political position. Jesus plus our devotional practices. All valid things can all be very good things. But the gospel says it's only Jesus and faith in Him that makes us acceptable to God. And what happens is if it's Jesus plus anything, if we add anything into that equation, what happens is that anything becomes the mission and Jesus just becomes assumed. If it's politics, if it's our theological camp or social issues, whether it be our liberal or conservative camp, the conviction becomes a requirement. Jesus is lost. That's why, for example, many people have the perception just to use one of these examples, that Christianity, the main passion and mission of Christianity is to legislate morality. Where would people get that idea? It's because when that conviction is added as a requirement, then that conviction becomes the passion. That conviction becomes what we talk about, and Jesus is just assumed. Scholar Dennis Johnson says, We must be especially careful to distinguish what God's Word says about the lifestyle that fits the faith, on the one hand, from what we find culturally comfortable, 
on the other. That's the third sign. Whenever we elevate our preferences to requirements, we're in danger of losing sight of grace. And fourth, the emotional sign. We experience our faith as a burden. Peter says to everyone gathered, he says, Why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our forefathers could bear? So when we think about our faith, when we think about God, when we think about Christianity, if we are walking around and it feels as if we have a heavy weight tied to ourselves, if we feel and experience our faith as a burden, if God is distant and there is no joy, then that's a sign. That's an indicator that maybe we've lost sight of grace. A part of our family moving here was our kids started a new school. It's a different type of school for them. It's a classical Christian school. And so instead of using a lot of uh, technology and iPads, which they used to use in their other school, they use books, big books, a lot of books. And that's been good, and they've been learning, and that's been awesome. But what's happened is their backpacks have come home like 30 pounds, and so they have to have like a supplementary bag when they're walking around from around school and carrying their books home. It's so heavy. And my wife, Amelia, who works at the school, is telling me she has to stand at the stairs for the little kids so they don't tumble down the stairs when they're walking up with their 30-pound backpacks. And when they carry that huge backpack home, and it's time to do their homework, and you have a 30-pound backpack and put it on the table and say, here you go. It's time to do your homework. That can be very discouraging and intimidating. That's how many of us feel when it comes to our faith. And if that's true, we're losing sight of grace. And the church can be guilty here. As a community, say, well, you're a Christian. Welcome. Let me add this requirement to your life. We'll put a subtle pressure, a social pressure on you unless you conform to this external standard and things start getting added into the backpack. And when we do this, we're losing sight of grace. Let's look at the flip side. Looking at the same passage mainly, what Peter says here, what are the signs if we lose sight of grace that we can regain it? What does that look like? Signs that we're learning grace show us how to recover grace when we have lost it. So let's look at the first one. Number one, we esteem inward reality over outward conformity. We remind our own hearts of grace in the gospel. What can my goodness and moral performance add to Jesus' perfect life, atoning death and victorious resurrection? What can my failures take away from Jesus' perfect life, atoning death? In victorious resurrection. Peter's argument here in his speech is that the gospel, the message of Christianity, is unlike all other life systems and belief systems, in that it is a message about what God does, not what we have to do for God. If you look at his speech again, starting in verse 6 and 7, he says, God made a choice. God knows the heart. God bore witness. God gave the Holy Spirit. God made no distinction. God cleansed their hearts. And then did you notice in verse 12 what happened? What's the reaction to Peter's speech? It says all these church leaders who were in the midst of this embroiled debate, they fell silent. 
What is Luke telling us with that? One commentator says, clearly he's saying that his speech had a profound impact. These leaders in the church, some who had followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, some for 20 years, were stunned into silence. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly why. But I think it's because Peter reawakened everyone there to the simple yet profound difference between the gospel and everything else. It's about what God does for us. And there was silence. It's almost like they said, we almost forgot. It's significant that Peter gave this monumental speech. If you know something about the life of Peter, because he forgot. In the letter to the Galatian church, the Apostle Paul tells a story of a time when he was interacting with Peter in the church at Galatia. Something similar had happened. This group came down from Judea. They were spending time in this church at Galatia. They believed that in order to be a full and complete Christian, you had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And Peter said, I think I'd better hang out with these guys and not with those who are non-Jewish. I'm going to eat with them at their table and not with those people over there. And Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face. He said, you are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. Reawakening. Peter had forgotten. If Peter can forget, Peter, the most important leader of the twelve disciples, the leader of the early church, if Peter can forget, then we also can forget. And this challenges me, this challenges us, us all, to ask, where is the focus and the energy of my life being directed? Is it on the inward reality or the outward conformity? When we were moving here, we were looking at places to rent and to live and houses, searching Zillow and all that, and when you search Zillow, sometimes you'll come across a house and you go, oh, that's a nice house, let's look at that one. Start clicking at pictures and go, why aren't they showing us any pictures of the inside? Like, red flag, red flag. It's probably not looking so good on the inside. And so for us, because we can so easily lose sight of grace in the gospel, we need to give attention to the inner realities and the inner dialogue of our own hearts. You may have heard it said before, but we need to preach the gospel to ourselves because we forget. We're always preaching something to ourselves, and most of us have a default operating system in our hearts that says, unless you do this... You are not acceptable. You are not worthy. It is necessary that you do this to have a true identity, to be acceptable and successful in the eyes of others. We need to counteract that operating system message with a new operating system, the gospel message that it is by grace. Second sign that we are learning grace. We emphasize what we share in common with others. We are less black and white about life. We find that we are celebrating good in others instead of always comparing. Most of all, we live with an awareness of our common and equal need of a Savior with other people. The hardest part of Christianity for religious, moral people is letting go of the pride and saying, I am just like everyone else. The hardest part of Christianity for people who feel guilty or unworthy is letting go of the pride and saying, I'm not like everyone else. I'm worse than everyone else. 
letting go of that. The gospel tells us there is no distinction. There is no us and them. We are all equally broken and sinful and in need of a Savior. John Stott says in his commentary on this passage, grace and faith level us. They make fraternal fellowship possible. In other words, he's saying in order for our relationships to thrive, for conflict to be resolved, we need a leveler in our lives. For example, if we are wronged in a relationship, what are the kind of things that go through our head? Maybe it's in our marriage relationship, a close friend, or we're at work. Often our first instinct is to say, I would have never done that to you. After all that I've done, and we end up comparing our behavior and say, here I am, here's what I've done for you, and yet here's how you've treated me. And the truth is, that sometimes we think forgiveness is, I can grant you forgiveness from my higher ground. Say, yeah, I would never do that. I would never do such a thing. I am above such behavior, but I will give you forgiveness. That's a kind of pseudo-forgiveness that doesn't actually lead to repair and healing in relationships. The only forgiveness that repairs and strengthens a relationship is when we get back onto level ground. And grace is the great leveler. Because we are all in equal need of forgiveness. And so we can say, I forgive you as someone who has been forgiven of a far greater offense by God through Christ. Third sign, we are learning grace. We elevate Jesus over our preferences. Like it was for Peter, it may be hard for us, but we're willing to set aside our cultural preferences if it might mean that others would see Jesus. We elevate Jesus over our preferences. We start to see the good and the bad in our culture, and we start to see the benefits and the dangers of some of our deeply held convictions, even our good convictions. This passage says there is something that is worth fighting for. There is something that's worth being black and white about, and that is grace. This whole council got together, and they said, we need to come to clarity. Peter stood up, and he said, we need to fight for this. James stood up and said, he's right, we need to fight for this. Paul stood up and said, we need to draw a line here. The line we need to draw is between grace and everything else. With almost all other things in life, we are to learn to be gentle, understanding, patient, loving, forbearing, and err on the side of generosity when we disagree with other people. This was so hard for Peter. Five chapters earlier, there's a backstory here again for Peter. Jesus had appeared to Peter in a vision and said, Peter, I want you to go talk to this guy named Cornelius. He's not a Jewish person, but he needs to hear the gospel, and I'm sending you to him, and he's ready. And the way that he showed them is he dropped a sheet in front of them in this vision with all these animals that, according to the Jewish ceremonial law, they were not supposed to eat. And Peter said no to Jesus. I will not do that. Second time, no. Third time, okay. This was very hard for Peter. James as well. James is known to be very Jewish. He treasured his Jewish heritage. The legend, or maybe the true legend of James, is that he would spend every day praying in the temple, not just for the church, but for his Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. He loved the law. But he said, this is not about me. He went back 
to the scriptures. He went back, he's quoting from the book of Amos and what he says there when he stands up and gives his speech and he says, this challenges my own biases and preferences. But this has been God's plan all along to create a community from every culture and ethnicity on earth to be a display of grace to the world. So Peter and James, two key early church leaders, it wasn't easy, it's not easy for us to set aside our preferences, our convictions. It feels like we're compromising and make us feel uncomfortable at times, but that's good news when we feel that way because that means we're elevating Jesus above our preferences and we're learning to live in grace. Lastly, the last sign that we're learning to live and gaining sight of grace again as we experience our faith as joy and freedom. Our souls are regularly set free from the burdens of guilt and shame. We experience our faith as a joy, as a delight. We find deep freedom knowing there's nothing we can do to make God love us less or love us more. And our greatest joy is not in what God can give us, but in God himself. Having just moved here, we're almost finished with one of the worst parts of moving, which is unpacking boxes and especially moving heavy, heavy items of furniture to get them in the, just the right place that we want them in our house. So we had movers come. Thankfully, they did most of the heavy lifting. But then we realized after like five weeks, we said, no, actually, these couches need to go there and these couches need to go there. And we said, okay, let's make it happen. But that, it was a Saturday, and Amelia had to run errands, and I was like, I'm going to do this myself. And so what I had to do is move this like seven-piece couch out on to the porch, put it out there, move the other couches from one room to the other, and I was trying to bribe my kids to help. They helped a little bit. But I was just sweating, and it was all this lifting and heavy, heavy labor. But finally, when I sat down to rest in the couch, in the place that I wanted it to be, it was like, yes. Finally, done lifting. That's how our faith is supposed to feel. The gospel is that God has come in Christ to lift the burden. God does all the heavy lifting. And we are meant to rest and to receive. Some of you came here this morning weighed down and burdened. Some of you who are burnt out, maybe you're burnt out on your faith. Those of you who have just kind of said, I'm gi I give up trying. I'm done trying. Maybe what you need to see is you're not burnt out. You're not giving up on Christianity at all. Because we need to ask ourselves, if we're wearing that backpack, if we're carrying that backpack with us, who asked us to carry that? Who filled it up with all those books, with all that weight? Grace says, that wasn't God. Maybe that was ourselves. Maybe that was the expectations that were put on us by other people. The experience of grace is that God wants to come and lift that. Remove that burden. So you never had to be carrying that in the first place. As Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear those words. And I know I am so drawn to that idea of deep soul rest. That we can live such a life where it's not up to us. Where we can live in the freedom of knowing that what you have done for us is enough. I pray this morning would be a day of return to joy, of deep rest, a day where we regain our sight and remember that we are saved, that we grow, that we are carried through the entirety of this life, not by carrying our own heavy backpack of expectations and achievements, but by releasing that, following Jesus, the one who has given us the gift of eternal life. And we pray in his name. Amen. Now this time, we're going to respond to the grace of God and that he's given to us in our lives by giving back to him with our offering. So let's take some time to reflect and to do that now.